The lyrics describe people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. It reflects this absence of genuine communication that I think many of us are familiar with today, with the proliferation of technology. And beyond that, the song predicts the death of music. It says people are writing songs that voices never share. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. And then the narrator says, fools, I say, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. But then his words only echoed in silence because no one was willing to heed his warning. And so I'm not here to exegete a popular song. Um, Ultimately, the silence that leaves us Uh, The silence described in Paul Simon's song leaves us empty. It leaves us without answers. Silence is a a metaphor for hopelessness. And so I only wish Paul Simon had read and understood his Bible. He might have had a more robust understanding of silence and what it implies. As this morning's passage shows, silence packs a lot of significance, and it doesn't have to invoke a sense of despair. Back in chapter 6 of Revelation, we looked at the seven seals uh, as the lamb was opening each seal, and it was depicting the judgment that was falling upon earth's inhabitants. And it's followed by this chapter of praise in in chapter 7. You have the praise of the church in heaven, and there's two visions there, but right, the church is first of all portrayed and pictured as the church militant, arrayed for battle, and then it's followed in the second half of that chapter as the church triumphant, celebrating the victory of the Lamb. And so remember the the comment from Rezegui, he said, as the seals are unsealed, the saints are sealed. In that first half of chapter 7, those saints that are arrayed for battle, the church militant was sealed. They were given a, a seal of protection by the Lord, from the very judgments that were being described in the previous chapter. And so while the judgment of God is carried out throughout this present age, so is the salvation and preservation of his people, of the church. As we come to the seventh and final seal now this morning, we expect to see this climactic conclusion The anticipation has been building now for this crescendo of redemptive history. And so before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, once again, we open your word and we long to hear from you. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides soul and spirit between joint and marrow, is so precise in what it intends to do. Lord, do that work in us. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Soften us for this truth that we might respond in obedience to it, that we would bring you glory in the way we obey your word, that we would be not hearers only, but doers of your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. 
Read with me, Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, if you're following along in your outline, we come to this first verse And we want to consider the sound of silence. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, walk with me back through chapters 6 and 7 for a moment here. Imagine John's experience. He's heard the loud galloping of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing their devastating judgments upon the earth. He's heard the sound of the souls of saints crying out with a loud voice, Later on, he hears people calling to mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. John heard a lot of noise. He saw a lot of chaos taking place as each seal is opened. And then he gets to chapter seven and he hears this constant sound of worship. Day and night, it says, the four living creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. At the same time, the 24 elders declare God and the, lamb worthy, uh, the Lamb's worthiness to receive glory and honor and power. The saints are coming out of the great tribulation and they're joining in that worship. And they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And so he has witnessed all of this noise and, and commotion as well as the order and the glorious, majestic worship of heaven. And then he comes to the seventh seal. And after he opens it, it would be silent, (laughs) right? There's silence. You could count, we, we just were silent for three seconds. Imagine that for 30 minutes. Silence. It would have a dramatic impact. Before we attempt to understand what that silence represents, put yourself in John's shoes. Imagine that 30 minutes of dramatic pause. It's a long time for him to meditate upon all that he's already seen up to this point and to prepare himself for what he'll see in the, in the next couple of chapters. The first thing silence does And this is based on looking at other passages of Scripture, as we'll see. But silence warns. Silence is eerie. Right? It's uncomfortable. It's ominous. It's it's uncomfortable so that when there's ever times of silence in a worship service, I've asked the musician to play through that time. (laughs) So it's not awkward. That's what silence does. it's, it's, It's uncomfortable. It's eerie. We want to fill the void. Horror films use silence to raise tension. When a woe, 
was declared upon the idolatrous Chaldeans, Habakkuk said, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Similarly, in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord has been aroused for judgment and the prophet declares, be silent all flesh before the Lord. And when Zephaniah warns that the day of judgment is near, he commands, be silent before the Lord. So silence calls unbelievers to shut their mouths before the living God. It's a warning. Have some respect for your maker. But the silence is temporary. God's willingness to wait for repentance has an expiration date. All right, silence in this case represents the arrival of the day of the Lord. It warns earth's inhabitants to flee from the wrath that has arrived already. All right, but this is not a hopeless sound, at least not for everyone. All right, before the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Moses told them to be silent as the Lord would fight for them. All they had to do as his people was to be silent. Let him do the work. And so for God's people, there's a difference in the way we understand silence. And for the souls of believers in heaven, along with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the myriad of angels, silence allowed for reverence. It was an opportunity to be still and to know that God is God. The heavenly host could do nothing but reflect upon God's glory in that moment. They could do nothing but acknowledge his beauty, enjoy his presence, to say nothing and to just observe in awe. How would we want anything else? In a world that's filled with so much distraction with the incessant buzz of technology and entertainment and literally endless streams and scrolling apps that we can open up and waste our time on. Maybe in light of that, you think silence sounds boring. Maybe you think standing in silence for 30 minutes sounds like torture. You mean I can't have my iPhone? Are, are iPhones going to be in heaven? Or maybe like me, you find silence this precious commodity that's almost impossible to find nowadays. At the moment you get some time to yourself, you're bombarded with noise. And so you crave those moments of peace and quiet where you can meditate in solitude. But don't hear me suggesting that this is an indefinite period of silence and solitude or like that's our ultimate goal, that really that's what we're, we're primarily reaching for is just that quietness where we can be alone by ourselves, where we don't have anyone around. That's not the ultimate goal. Right, the particular, this particular silence was preceded by John's revelation of this joyful and thunderous praise that's happening in heaven. Judgment is followed by the celebration of, of victory. And so I don't want to minimize the hope of those festive times, 
that await us by suggesting that silence is the superior thing. It's not. But in this present age where silence allows for reverence, reverence does not come naturally to us. We have to fight for that. Right? It requires discipline to take advantage of this, those fleeting moments that we have. And so in summary, I would say silence in heaven represents this brief opportunity for sinners to repent and for saints to revere. And then in the midst of the quiet, something else is taking place. As the passage continues in verses 2 through 4, you have the smoke of incense. And that smoke represents something important. Right? It seems likely that the silence described in verse 1 is related to the activity that follows. And so it is as if God the Father has quieted heaven in order to hear the prayers of all his children. That's what the smoke of incense represents, and let me point that out to you. The seven angels are, are given their trumpets in preparation for the further unfolding of God's end-time judgment, and we'll see those trumpets blasting in the next weeks. But although John saw those trumpets after the seals in time, right? His vision, he, he began by seeing the seals and then he sees the trumpets. That doesn't mean in our experience they're happening in chrono chronological order like that. As we'll see, when we compare the seals and the trumpets and the bowls together, they seem to be happening simultaneously. They seem to be describing the same kinds of events that are happening. God's judgment being carried out, poured out upon the earth while his saints are being protected from devastation. And so although John saw those trumpets after the seals were opened in his vision, the judgments they depict are happening at the same time. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they all depict the judgment of God, which culminates in this final judgment at the return of Christ. And then we see this other angel who comes and takes a censer that's used for, for burning incense. We read back in chapter 5, verse 8, that the 24 elders held bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In Psalm 141, verse 2, David asks uh, that his prayer be counted as incense before God. So here this incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. It's as if our prayers are being sweetened with the assistance of heavenly beings who are allowing those prayers to now ascend to the throne of God. The angel is seen to be standing by the altar beneath which the, the souls of the martyrs were crying out for God to take vengeance. We read that in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So you have this altar near the throne of God beneath which there are souls of saints who have been martyred for their, for their faithfulness to the gospel. And they are, they are then uh, praying and asking for God to vindicate his name, to, to bring vengeance upon their opponents, their adversaries, those who, who slayed them. And now this angel is standing by that altar and he's taking those prayers and he's taking the prayers of all the saints 
and he's combining them with the incense of his censer, and he's offering them up to God. And these prayers, are, they're not limited to the prayers of the martyrs, but they do certainly include them. So the angel is combining the prayers of the souls in heaven with the prayers of the saints on earth. It is a picture of the prayers of the universal church. Across age, across time, across ethnicities, cultures, it's the universal church united in her desire to see the execution of God's judgment. Their prayers are offered as a pleasing aroma to God. So there's an allusion here to the priest's duties on the Day of Atonement. Back in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, we read about the duties of the, of the high priest. As they enter into the Holy of Holies, they were, in order that they not die, in order that they not be put to death for just going in flippantly, they were to enter with a censer and to fill that censer with incense and coals of fire from the altar. And they were to allow the cloud of the smoke from that incense to cover the mercy seat that's above the Ark of the Covenant that's standing within the center of the Holy of Holies. So they enter in, before they can do anything, before they can pray, they are to bring this incense, this smoke, and to cover the, the entire place with a cloud. Right? It's a, to serve as an illustration of their, of their atonement, of God making them fit to come in his presence. And so what's happening here in heaven is this, in the midst of that heavenly silence, this angel is performing the duties of the priest in order that the prayers of God's people might be heard. And then likewise, under the old covenant, you have the altar of incense that was instructed to be anointed with the blood of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. Remember, the Day of Atonement had many offerings taking place. You had the, the, the sacrificial lamb that was slain on that day, and some of that blood was placed upon the horns of the altar of incense, and it's described in Exodus chapter 30, verses 8 through 10. So now you have a combination of this incense with the sacrifice that's required to come before God. Under the new covenant... It's not the blood of the lamb, it's the blood of Christ that not only cleanses his people from their sin, but also sanctifies our prayers and makes them fit to be heard by God. It's the sacrificial death of the unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ, that makes us and our prayers acceptable before God. He is our great high priest who always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7. Likewise, we learn that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. So all of this is culminating the, the help of the angels, the help of our great high priest, and the help of the Holy Spirit is a picture of the marvelous communion that we enjoy every time we fall on our knees before the throne of grace in prayer. And yet, we struggle to do that. We struggle to find time. 
in the 24 hours that we're given to enjoy this kind of communion. The execution of God's sovereign decree includes the involvement of our prayers. As the seals are being opened, as the bowls are being poured out, as the trumpets are being blasted, the prayers of the saints are being heard and the execution of God's sovereign plan is taking place. And so he involves and includes our prayers in the carrying out of his purposes. We do not neglect them because we have a sovereign God. We don't think that because God is sovereign, we don't need to pray. He doesn't need us. We can do nothing. No, he intends to use us. He has purposed his decrees to be carried out through the prayers of his saints. And so the ongoing posture of the saints in prayer is a heart that is cleansed by the blood of the lamb and that is filled by the spirit with repentance and reverence. The same thing that the silence helps us to see should be the posture of our prayers that we would daily be coming to him in repentance with reverence for his holiness and his might, his power. It's only then that we'll seek the vindication of God's name. Only then will we find his name so precious that all wickedness must be done away with. Only then will we learn to hate our sin as much as God hates it. And because we're united to Christ, And as I've said already, of course, we know that that is imperfect in this life. God is continually, progressively sanctifying us in this way until we reach glory, until he returns and puts an end to it for once and for all. But God answers the prayers of his people with the noise of vengeance, and that's what's described in verse five. We cannot gloss over this. We cannot minimize this part. We cannot water it down. We read, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth and there were pills of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. These same sounds and scenes are recorded back in chapter four, verse five as emanating from the throne. We read, from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And then we read that same thing here in chapter 8, verse 5. Later on in chapter 11, verse 19, we'll see it again. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. And again in chapter 16, verses 18 through 21. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Notice the increasing intensity of each description. It builds upon itself. There's more adjectives added, more description of the judgment that's taking place, but that is what is being described as judgment. It consistently depicts the noise of judgment. It's God coming in vengeance. 
And so that doesn't mean God repeatedly pours out his wrath upon the earth. It doesn't mean that he's constantly doing that, that he, he, he does it at one point partially, and then he does it more fully, and then he does it more fully. No, it's all describing the same event, the second coming of Christ in greater detail. But it's describing the judgment that awaits those who do not submit to their king. John has seen the same event portrayed from different angles, and he's providing further description. So in this case, the wrath of God's final judgment is related to the opening of the seventh seal. And this, there's a, another allusion here to Ezekiel. An angel in the temple is instructed as, uh, to take the coals of fire and scatter them over the city in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. And so the idolatrous inhabitants of Jerusalem, which we just read in chapter 16, compared or, or illustrated in very graphic terms. The idolatrous inhabitants of Jerusalem were about to be judged as the glory of the Lord is departing from the temple and only a remnant would be preserved. And that remnant was sealed with a protective mark in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four. Similar to the seal that the saints who were lined up in battle array, the church militant receive a seal from God. They're protected from the judgment that's about to come. But notice in in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four, it said the remnant that was sealed with a protective mark, they were sealed because they sigh and they groan over all the abominations that are committed. They sigh and groan over the abominations that are being committed in the city. In other words, they're different than the rest of the nation. The nation that has been filled with idolatry, these people are groaning about it. They're disturbed by the flippant lifestyles of their kinsmen. And so the distinguishing characteristic of God's people before they were even exiled was their prayers of repentance. And that is just as true for God's people today. We are called to daily repentance and reverence. You will only repent when you realize that you have not shown God the proper reverence that he is due. That's why it's troubling when so many churches take worship in a flippant manner. When they think we should just relax, chill out, not take this all that, at all that serious. Because that will not be our attitude when Christ returns by far. We come with reverence. We come humble. Those who truly repent and believe are promised the seal of God's protection. And so your only hope of surviving God's vengeance is to receive his seal of salvation. And as long as that day hasn't come, this serves as a warning to you to not let another day go by without receiving that seal of salvation. You must heed the warning of the sound of silence. You must bow and pray to the only God who made you and is capable of protecting you. You must personally join the remnant of saints who have repented of their sin and place their faith in the lamb who was slain. Only then will the presence of God become a place of reverence. So let's pray. Heavenly Father,
This passage is significant, even in its simplicity. And it calls us to something great. It calls us to something that we, in in and of ourselves, are incapable of doing. It is beyond us. It requires the supernatural work of your spirit to grant us the gift of repentance, repentance, to, to come before you with a reverence that we don't have naturally, that we are not inclined to in this life. So Lord, as we come to worship, we want to keep these two themes always before us, to come humbly and to come reverently. Lord, may we respond with that attitude even now as we recognize that it is in Christ alone that we have access to your throne of grace. It is in his shed blood on our behalf that we not only ourselves are, find acceptance before you, but our prayers are also heard. So hear us now as we lift you up. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to 